Go ahead and take your copy of God's Word this morning and head with me to Psalm 133. Psalm 133 is where we'll be this morning. We're continuing our time in the Psalms of Ascent this week and next week, and then we're done in the Psalms of Ascent. That means that it's November and then December, and then all of a sudden it's 2019. Um, closing in on the end of the year pretty, pretty rapidly. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are copies in back. Larry has a handful right now, and if you need one, put your hand in the air. He'd love to bring you one. If you don't have a copy of God's Word or need a new copy of God's Word, that's our gift to you. Go ahead and take that with you. We don't want them. I mean, we want our copy, but we don't want that copy. That one's for you. So take that and go with it and, and use it and wear it out quickly. Psalm 133 this morning. Let me read this for us. It's only another three-verse psalm like we had a couple weeks ago. Um, but again, incredibly important, just packed Packed with information. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. In 2007, Mike Hart, uh, Michigan Wolverines running back, uh, called the Michigan State Spartans little brother. Now, if you're a college football fan, you know that that, that game, Michigan-Michigan State, was yesterday. It was actually a really boring game because there was a lot of rain. I don't know if you watched it. It doesn't matter. M Mike Hart said something to this extent about the, the Spartans. He said, you know, sometimes you let your little brother get excited. You let him get the lead then you just come back and take it back. That sparked a recent TV ad for yesterday's game that, that went something like this, where the narrator said something like this, even though this was 11 years ago. It's different with brothers. They grow up together. They know how to get under each other's skin. And so conflict is petty. You don't try to understand it. It's personal. When brothers fight, you stay out of the way. Having to... A five-year-old and a four-year-old who are brothers, yeah, it's true. Conflict is petty. It's very petty. I don't know if the people who are marketing, <laughs> I don't know if the people who are marketing football games are reading Psalm 133. My guess is probably not. But the reality is that this, this psalm stands in direct opposition to, to the way that that game was marketed. Now, I like football, and when I saw that ad, I was like, oh, yeah, that game, I'm watching it because it's been a good game for the last several years. I like football, and when, when, when someone gets wrecked in football, I get up off the couch. I do. And the reason that I like football is simply because, because society, though, has told me, I think, that it's a masculine thing, right? It, it gets me up off the couch when a, when a wide receiver comes across the middle and gets annihilated by a safety. I'm not saying that you don't have to like football, but I have to wonder. I have to wonder, especially when I read this psalm. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And again, I, I like football. But I wonder if football is more of a representation of the masculinity that society tells us is important. This is the masculinity that society celebrates and deals with conflict maybe more like, say, Cain and Abel than it does in the way Psalm 133 prescribes for us. 
I'm going to step on some toes right out of the gate. That's okay. I'm going to go home and watch the Vikings today still. But what if unity among people, that's not the point. Football's not the point. What if immunity, immunity, immunity among people was more attractive than competition? What if harmony among people was regarded more highly than conflict? Just turn on the TV and, and you'll find conflict is more highly regarded in our, in our society than, than harmony is. Almost everything that we watch is based on some form of conflict. Now, I'm not saying conflict is bad. We've talked about this before. Conflict in and of itself is not bad. In fact, the Bible is a book of conflict. It really largely is a book of conflict, not just in wars or, or in, in, in stories and narrative, but in the reality that we as people were in direct conflict with our God from Genesis 3 when, when the fall takes place, when, when Adam and Eve eat the fruit in the garden and, and disobey God. There's immediate conflict that ensues after that. But the Bible, even though it's a book about conflict, is moving us towards a dramatic resolution. And that's the difference. That's the difference between the things that we see in our world and the conflict that we see in reality television shows or even in a football game. That Vikings-Packers, no, there's no resolution that that, that, that that conflict is. Those organizations aren't going to get together and shake their hands and say, hey, we've been real petty for a few years. Let's get together and hang out a little bit more. That's not happening. That's not happening. And since we live in this world of perpetual celebrated conflict where resolution isn't part of the equation, and even in our own opinions about vehicle makes or Pepsi and Coke, we, we experience we experience conflict or disunity, disharmony. And so when we consider Psalm 133, where conflict is resolved and where brothers dwell in unity, two things come to mind in this text. Two things, and they kind of flow from, we're going to spend time thinking about verse 1, but they kind of flow from verses 2 and 3 in these, these sort of explicit images that David gives to us. The oil on the head and the beard and the collar of Aaron and then the dew of the dew of Hermon. These two things are, are this. First, true unity comes through being set apart by God. The second thing that we're going to consider is that true unity creates rich soil for, for gospel growth. True unity comes through being set apart by God. Secondly, true unity creates rich soil for gospel growth. Again, this idea, the first idea that we're going to unpack, true unity comes through being set apart by God. That, that primarily comes from verse 2, but before we jump there, let's think a little bit about verse 1. Because there's, we've got to define our terms here, and this is what David does. David defines his terms in, in verse 1. At first glance, I think our inclination, and even in my opening, what I sort of majored on in that was the unity piece. The unity piece. But I, I think that there's a more important word contained in verse 1. And that's the word dwell. Dwell. Now, remember last week we spent a significant amount of time talking about the dwelling of God and how God doesn't reside or dwell in a house made with human hands. But in the, in the church, he dwells in, in us. Not, not the place, not, but the, the people. The people, of, the people of God. There are a handful of other reasons I think that dwell is the most important piece here. When God dwells among his people, when we gather together as the local church, we are referred to as the temple again by Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. 
Again, not the place, the people, not the individual, but the visible corporate expression. And again, throughout the trajectory of redemptive history in the garden, God dwelled with Adam and Eve in perfect communion with them. That's broken because of sin. And, but in new creation, in the trajectory of, of redemptive history, we will get to a place where that type of communion with God will be restored. This is what we discussed last week. And once Jesus returns and sin and death meet their ultimate destiny, and we will meet ours, our ultimate destiny, if we are in Christ Jesus, is communion with God for all of eternity. So dwell then here flows out of, out of 132 into 133. So that's one reason why it needs to be considered. The second reason is just the verb. It's usually important. It's actually what's happening. Dwell. Brothers, dwell in unity. And unity describes how it's happening. David doesn't say when brothers think about unity or when brothers feel united or when brothers feel like they or put on a united front. He says dwell. When brothers dwell in unity, living in unity, making it their house, coming home to unity, fellowshipping in unity, thinking about what happens in your house. Your head hits the pillow after a long day of, of work. And the home then becomes the representation of shalom. The home becomes the representation in our life of, of peace. David knew that the home should be a place of peace. And so he uses this word in, as, the, as the centerpiece of of verse 1. His intent is to show that it is good and pleasant when the most comfortable place for people is in unity with one another. Now, there's a very real truth that for many people, and maybe many of you in this room this morning, that your dwelling place or your home, the place where you put your head on the pillow, is not a place of peace. And maybe you and your spouse are at odds with one another. Maybe you and your kids are at odds with one another. Or, or maybe your kids are just young and really loud. <laughs> maybe your house is a mess and it feels like a box of chores instead of a place of peace. Or maybe your household's past painful memories of a struggle with sin. And maybe an ongoing struggle with sin. Let me encourage you in this. Maybe more admonish you in this. If that's you, go home and make Jesus the center of your home. As you're going to clear up everything that's happening, maybe not in the immediate, but the reality is we need to put Christ at the center of all we do, and that, that means the home as well. Because as we're going to see, that idea, this idea of brothers dwelling in unity in, uh, in the harmony that God has set forth for us, comes first and foremost and finds its first expression in our home, which is why, again, David uses the word dwell. So if we go home and make Jesus the center of our relationship with our spouse or with our relationship with our kids or of your day, of your chores, all of those things, acknowledge that no matter what pain you've suffered as a result of sin or your sin, the sin of another, Jesus has, in fact, dealt with it. Therefore, he needs to be the center of it. And if you feel like your home is at chaos, and women, I know that this is true of you. Oftentimes you feel that way. And men, we feel this way too. How can my home be a home of peace? The kids keep drawing on the walls. They just keep drawing on the walls. 
Like, where did you find that crayon? They're all on top of the refrigerator. You have a secret stash. There's so much laundry to fold. (laughs) There's so much laundry to fold. You know, like laundry is that thing that just never ends. It's always there. And you can't get it done because the kids have to get sacrificed. Men, do you know why oftentimes you would rather work 100 hours in a week than come home? Because you feel like maybe your home is not a place of peace. Sometimes you can't wait to get out of the house because the morning the kids are going nuts because your wife is telling you about all the things that you have to get done when you get home at 5.15. And maybe the office or the warehouse or the tractor feels more like a place of peace than your home. Maybe your kids are out of the house. Maybe you're an empty nester and you're just bored. And there's no rest because you've been aboard the crazy train for the last 25 to 30 years and you're wondering, how do I get off? How do I exit? Go home, turn off the football game and make Jesus a center. Read the Bible. Who cares if the kids don't sit still? Studies actually show that kids listen better when they're running around and playing with something while you're reading anyways. Let them play. Just read the Bible out loud. Pray with your kids. Make it a regular mealtime activity. Make it a before bed. Don't, I have the tendency to do this. I just throw the kids into bed. Dear Jesus, bless these kiddos. Boom, done. If Jesus isn't the center of your home, it won't be a pace of peace. And this psalm honestly won't make much sense. It won't make much sense. If the primary place in which we dwell is not a place of peace, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity is going to be something that falls on our deaf ears. But if your poem is a place of peace, it all comes into view. Again, the home is the first expression of what the psalm is saying. Brothers dwelling in unity, living in harmony. It's not just a thing brothers do. It's where they live. Dwelling in unity means being enduringly faithful. Friends, it is good and pleasant to dwell in unity, to live there, to reside there. Now, again, I said the, the reality for some of us is that the home just isn't a place of peace. And this isn't a quick fix. It's not just plug Jesus into the center and then boom. But the, if, if, if we're not willing to take steps, concerted effort to move in that direction, we're not going to see any type of, any type of changes in our home. Now, but the reality also of this is that it's pointing us to something higher. It doesn't end there. For many of us, because we have young kids or or because of just their situation in life, it ends with the home. But it doesn't end with the home. When David says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, he's not talking about biological brothers. He's talking about the people of God. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell People have been united together by something in common. How good and pleasant when they dwell in unity. The reality is probably the heart of this psalm comes from a place or a time in Israel's history when things were going so well, when resources were so available that they could get together and be together and live in close proximity with one another and show the world what God's people were about. 
Before we go on, though, I just want to slow down and, and be unified in what is meant by unity. Because we read that word and we think a lot of different things. And I think primarily right away we think to ourselves, well, this means never disagreeing. No, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean never disagreeing. I, I hear a lot of people lamenting things within the church that keep us separate. Say like denominations. Why can't we just all get along? If we were real Christians, we would just ignore what makes us different. That's not what this is about. That's not what this text is, is about. Denominations largely exist because biblical interpretations didn't exist. And sure, people drop petty lines in weird places, but whatever. That's not what this psalm is getting at. That's not what we're talking about. I'm going to give you a simple, direct, uh, simple definition here. Unity here, as is used in Psalm 133, is simply this. Commonality in direction. Commonality in direction. The unity that we have is displayed in our desire to show the world that Jesus is better through loving God, loving neighbor, and making disciples. That's the unity that David is talking about. Unity in this context, commonality in direction. So immediately we have to ask ourselves, as the local church, as people who have identified with this as our local church, Will we be a people who maintain commonality and direction or will we walk out the door? Will we go to self-pursuits and personal truths? Will we maintain our commonality and directions when we walk out of the door or will we immediately go and pursue self-interest or, and, or, and, and or personal truths? Will we walk out the door and adhere to the teachings of Oprah or we walk out of the door and adhere to the teachings of Jesus. Oprah says, live your truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. And so, if we were to have unity, I'm not saying we have to agree on everything, but if we, if we want to have unity, we need to have common direction. And this is the unity that David is talking about. Commonality and direction. For Israel, it was to love the Lord their God, to love their neighbor. It was to be a light to the nations. That was the, that was the mission of Israel. And the unity that we have then is displayed again in our desire to show the world that Jesus is better by loving our neighbor, by loving our God, and by making making disciples. All of this comes through the work of the Spirit which resides in us. The, the reality of this, this is actually kind of all under this heading. Um, we're getting there. We're still in verse 1, but we're going to get to verse 2 now. The reality of this is it actually brings us back to our point that true unity, true commonality and direction comes as a result of God's work in setting us apart. And this is where verse 2 becomes so important. David uses this image that probably looks pretty weird to us. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. But this image of oil on the head and beard of Aaron and on his collar. And now, we know who Aaron was. Aaron was the brother of, of Moses. And in Exodus 30, God tells Moses to set apart Aaron and his sons. He tells him to consecrate him uh, for the priesthood. And a few verses later, 
in, uh, or in Exodus 30.30, he says, You shall anoint Aaron, his sons. This is to Moses. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. God calls it holy, which means that it's set apart or it's consecrated. So this image, though it seems weird to us, because it does, it just feels weird. It's just not something that we do or see in our society ever. This image would have really stirred something in the, the readers of this psalm. It would have stirred something. They said, okay, like this is an allusion to holiness. What does it mean to be set apart? What does it mean to be, well, it means to be unified, to have commonality and direction, to see the mission that God has given us and to live into it, to work towards it, to make our lives about it. And so when God sets his people apart for his specific purposes, what does David say in verse 1 that is? That is good and it is pleasant. And if God is setting his people apart for his purposes, we see that that has really honestly been our definition of, of the local church. Buffalo City Church, God has set us apart to show the world that Jesus is better through loving him, through loving our neighbor, through making disciples. And friends, this is so important for us as the local church. In fact, in fact, the reality is that oftentimes we approach the Sunday morning worship space as a Sunday morning ritual. Or we organize ourselves into what we feel like is a social club where I have to pay my dues. Or I got to take 90 minutes out of my week to do a thing. And then we go out and we do Oprah things and we live our truth. At Buffalo City Church, God has set us apart to show the world that Jesus is better and how good and pleasant it is when we get in that stream together and allow it to govern our direction as a people and to eat and sleep and drink it and to find comfort and peace in it. If you're here and you've identified with Buffalo City Church, God has set you apart for that very purpose within the context of this body. What is the entity that God has set apart, consecrated to do his work on earth? It's the local church. This is where brothers seek to dwell in unity. And friends, don't make this more complex than it actually is. It's very simple. Don't wring your hands in hem and haw. Living a life of genuine care and concern for brothers and sisters in Christ, genuinely loving them as an expression of love for God, and encouraging one another to make disciples. Friends, the Christian life is good and pleasant when we hop into the stream of God's intent for us to show the world that Jesus is better. God has set us apart for these things. And just, just feel the peace that's kind of like, Sometimes we read the Bible and we just read the words and we read what's being said, but there's a mood here being communicated as well. Let the, let the peace of, of this wash over you when you... Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his, his robe. I don't know what you think of when you think of good and pleasant. I think of it like a warm blanket and like a fire in the fireplace or a warm breeze on a fall day. An agendaless day with my spouse. 
How good and pleasant. Not a duty or a demand, but a peace and comfort in dwelling in unity. Peace coming through brothers and sisters in Christ, carried along by the waters of God's intent. Maybe you're here and you're feeling anxious this morning. Maybe you're feeling a significant amount of anxiety just about your life. Maybe frustration. Maybe you're weighed down by tasks and responsibilities, wondering where your life is going and if you're wasting it or not. Could it be the emphasis of your life falls outside of the common direction that God has given us, that God's people are called to? Could it be because the emphasis of your life has become you? It's time that we saw that God has set us apart in this body to be set apart for his purposes. True unity among brothers comes through being set apart by God. Well, that takes us to our second idea then this morning. We look at verse, verse 3. True unity creates rich soil for gospel growth. True unity creates rich soil for gospel growth. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. I'm not going to dwell on this too long. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. True unity creates rich soil for gospel growth. But if we see this word picture, another word picture in verse 3, it's actually a simile. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Look at the blessing that comes through this is, is eternal life. Okay, but, but the reality, the dew of Hermon. Now, Hermon is a really big mountain or, or series of mountains in present day present-day Syria, they've got snow on them, right? They're very big. So I think the idea here is that the heavy dew would come off of Hermon during the dry season, and it would keep the land fruitful and flourishing. Despite the fact that no rain was coming in any heavy sort of way, it would keep the land flourishing during the dry season, this heavy dew. So, the idea then melded together with what the, the thrust of the psalm is, is when brothers dwell in unity, the soil is rich and the purposes of God flourish even in dry seasons. The, the, the soil is rich and the purposes of God flourish even in dry seasons. This is why dwelling in unity and having common direction is so vital. Because when it does, when we do have this, it causes the ground to be fertile even when there's dryness. Friends, when the world sticks its head through that door, if the world were to stick its head through that door, what would it see? I think that's the question that needs to flow directly from this. Would, they see, would it see a season of dryness where the ground is cracked and nothing is growing? Or would it see even in a dry season, in a dry and barren place, the gospel is bringing forth growth? When the world sticks its head through the door and observes the local church, does it see people genuinely caring for one another? Does it, show, does it see people showing concern for one another? Does it see people who look to serve one another and put the interests of others above above their own? Or does the world see something else? Oftentimes it does. You know it. You have coworkers, you have friends, you have family members who spent decades upon decades in the local church and won't go back because of backbiting and slander, because of rampant hypocrisy, 
Does the pursuit, or the pursuit of self-interest and, and personal truths above, above everything else? Does it see, does the world see when it sticks its head through the door? Does it see people who are looking to be served and have their consumeristic mentality satisfied rather than serve others? Jesus said it very clearly. He said, the son of man comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Are we prepared, church, to follow Jesus into that level of service? When the world sticks its head through the door, does it see those things? Does it see commonality and direction? The dew of Hermon falling on dry soil and keeping God's purposes flourishing in our community. Would the world see us sacrificing resources, energy, and time to see people find the truth that Jesus is, is better? Friends, if we refuse to dwell in, together in unity, to find commonality in direction, our church will reflect dry, cracked, thirsty soil that will yield very little, if no, fruit. So as our time draws to a close this morning, let's, let's think about putting this in practice. There are some thoughts. There's some thoughts. We're going to start 30,000 feet. We're going to start at the, the, the level of the church. We're going to move down to the familial, and then we'll end at the individual. First, ask. Ask yourself this. Do I share common direction with the people that make up the local church? Do I share common direction with the people that make up the local church? That common direction, again, is loving God, loving neighbor, and making disciples. Now, those aren't suggestions from man-made mission statements. Those are not suggestions from man-made mission statements. Rather, those are what the Bible tells us are the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself and, and uh, the Great Commission. Jesus' final words to his disciples before he ended, ascended into heaven was to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all that I have commanded you. Those are not man-made mission statements. They are found explicitly in Scripture. So loving God and loving neighbor are our greatest commandments. There's nothing greater that we can adhere to. There is nothing greater that we can adhere to. And oftentimes we think, oh, I'm good with loving God. Loving my neighbor is a little bit harder. And that one gets put on the back burner or just swept under the rug. But the reality is love for God is demonstrated or displayed through love for a neighbor. And that's why those two are coupled together. They're inseparable. John says they're inseparable in 1 John 3.10. He says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice the righteousness is not of God, does not practice righteousness and not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so, if we do not love our brothers and sisters, then what we are saying is that we are not children of God, but children of the devil. Simply, also, consider, it's simply letting people live and let live is not love, right? Maybe we get this wrong in our culture a little bit. We just say, okay, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. That's not love. Simply ignoring people is not loving them. Genuine care and concern for others is a non-negotiable for a Christian. Making disciples, again, part of the Great Commission, the last thing that Jesus would tell his disciples to do. So question for us then, for us as individuals, do you long to love God more, to love your neighbor better, 
and to see others grow in their relationship with God. Dwelling in unity and finding commonality in these things and pursuing them together. If the question or the answer to the question is, do I share common direction with the people of Buffalo City Churches? Kind of or not sure or no. Think about what's preventing that. It takes prayerful consideration, but let me get you started. Understand that the root of your lack of unity with the body is pride. Because a lack of a desire to find commonality and direction is most likely rooted in self, self-pursuit. And any course that sets out for yourself that, or any course that you set out for yourself that doesn't involve loving God, neighbor, making disciples is outside God's intent for you as his son or daughter. God sets his people apart for his purposes. Again, that's our definition of the local church. God's people set apart for his purposes. Friends, God never sets people apart for theirs. God always sets people apart for his purposes. He never sets people apart for theirs. Because if he did, friends, he would not be God. If God exists to serve you and your personal agenda, that makes you God. But God is God and and you are not. Our society celebrates lone rangers oftentimes over faithful men and women of God. But here is an area where we are called to be distinctly countercultural, making our dwelling in unity, not just checking in the Unity Hotel once a week on Sunday or every few months when we feel guilty. But we are told that it's good and pleasant when we dwell in unity. So that's the first thing this morning. Ask yourself this question as an individual. Do I share common direction with the people that make up the local church? Second thing that I want to say then. Dwell and make Jesus the center of, of your home. Now for each and every one of us, is going to look a little bit different. Okay? It is going to look different. Each one of us has a different rhythm or pattern in our homes. Some of us have a very traditional setup. Some of us not so traditional. Some of us find ourselves in a place that is less than desirable when it comes to our home like we talked about earlier. But what do I mean by this? Dwell and make Jesus the center of your home. What do I mean? Is your home a place of peace? Ask this question. It's a simple question. The Bible cares about the nuclear family because it provides us with an amazing opportunity to love, serve, and flourish within the context of the local church. Men, this means rejecting societal norms of masculinity. Men and women, it means rejecting the marital barter system that we talk about from time to time. What I mean by marital barter is you get to do that thing and then so I get to go do this. You go hang out with the ladies so I can go hang out with the bros. Men, God calls us to lead in our homes and the way that we do that is by dying to literally every personal preference that we have. We need to lead by making Jesus the center. I I get this. I, 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 I get this. Friends, I, I'm going to speak foolishly here as Paul says that he speaks foolishly when he appeals to his own personal experience. I'm going to speak foolishly. I have a five-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and two infants at home. If you, if you think that your house is loud, come on over. The reality is just total insanity right now. Our house, from a temporary noise standpoint, is not always a place, a place of peace. 
But from a shalom standpoint, from a peace with God standpoint, it, it can be. And largely thanks to the diligence of my wife. And I'm not saying that the kids aren't going bonkers because they are. What I am saying is that the place of peace has one distinguishing mark, that Jesus is the center of it. No matter how it's organized, no matter how it flushes itself out, is Jesus the center of your home? Is the Bible read together? Do we pray together? Do we speak the gospel? We don't promote temporary peace and quiet above the truth of how we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible speaks to how the family, this is an incredibly important text in the life of God's people, how the but the Bible speaks to how the family uh, is supposed to look in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, but principles over practices here. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign into your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Look at, look at you don't have verse numbers there, but in verse six, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. I think that, that preposition on is so important. It weighs us. It, it presses down on us and it says, these things shall be on your heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words shall be on your heart. Why is all of this important? It's not meant to stop in the home. That's why. God cares about the nuclear family because it builds a seedbed for the realities of unity amongst brothers. God has set us up to demonstrate faithfulness in the home in order that we might teach and ourselves learn what faithfulness among God's people looks like. Whatever your season of life, friends, whatever your season of life, I'm not just speaking to young families or people with children. If you are single, make Jesus the center of your home. If you are married with no kids, make Jesus the center of your home. If you're married with kids, make Jesus the center of your home. If you're an empty nester, if you're retired, you are all called to make Jesus the center of your home and to learn to dwell well there so that you may dwell in unity amongst your brothers and sisters in Christ. Final thing that I will say this morning. This is the personal level. Fight for personal holiness. And what do I mean by that? I heard an interview recently with a man named J.I. Packer. If you don't know who that is, go home and Google him. I'm not going to give you his bio. Um, he wrote a book called Knowing God, probably one of the most important, I think outside of the Bible, one of the most important books that a, a believer should pick up. Every Christian should read it. And he was asked, what is the most important emphasis of the church in the 21st century? What does it need to be? And he said, personal holiness. And what does it mean by that? It's the idea of set-apartness, right? We talked about that. God sets apart his people. Set-apartness is rejecting the culture and its ideals at the heart level. God has set us apart so we live set-apart lives. God has set us apart so we are to live set-apart lives. We don't set ourselves apart from the culture so that God will set us apart. We don't earn anything. We don't get it by being set apart, by removing ourselves from the culture. God sets us apart. God sets his people apart so we may live set-apart lives. 
And we live in a society where the majority of men, an increasing number of women, view pornography regularly, and in many ways, it's seen in our culture as normal. We live in a society where most popular TV shows contain graphic violence and nudity and devalue the truths of Scripture. We live in a society that tells you that self-interest is your highest good, and if it's not hurting anyone else, then you should go and do that thing. But you're not a victim of the culture. You're responsible to know what God's word says and reject these things wholesale. But God has set us apart, friends. If you're in Christ, God has set you apart. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity because of their set-apartness. But that begins in our own hearts, killing sin and rejecting the cultural narratives. And it is made possible through the work of Jesus. Friends, true freedom if you're weighed down by sin, things that you feel like you can't get out from underneath it, true freedom is found because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. When the Bible talks about freedom, it's not talking about our, our rights as humanity. It's talking about the reality that we no longer are bound to sin. And because of what Jesus achieved for us on the cross, because of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and now his ascension where he rules and reigns as king, we have freedom. We have the spirit of Christ dwelling inside of us, which allows us to kill sin, to reject it, to fight temptation, and to stay vigilant. So, we consider this text. Again, those, those three things. Do I share a common direction with the people of God? Do I dwell and make Jesus the center of my home? And am I going to fight personally for personal holiness? How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Fight for holiness. Make the home a place of peace and find common direction with the people of God. Let's pray.